from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Two of the Defense Department's biggest cloud products have potential cyber problems. The new annual report from the Office of the Director for Operational Test and Evaluation says it's, quote, concerned about the cyber survivability of the Defense Enterprise Office Solutions and Joint Regional Security Stacks. FCW reports the office says the department should look for alternatives to the JRSS. That annual report includes some positive developments on the department's electronic health records project. The office says MHS Genesis is now operationally effective for basic clinical operations. Federal News Network reports overall system usability is up to marginal low from unacceptable. Defense oversight leadership in the Senate Armed Services Committee is shaping up. Tammy Duckworth will lead the Airland Subcommittee, with Senator Mark Kelly taking over the Emerging Threats and Capabilities Subcommittee. Defense News reports Angus King will lead the Strategic Forces Subcommittee. The Army says its first hypersonic missile flight test should happen toward the end of this fiscal year. The new weapon will launch from the back of a mobile vehicle. Frank Kendall, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, he's former Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics. Frank, welcome. It's good to see you again. I quote from Jen Judson's piece in Defense News about this. The Army expects to deliver in a little more than 200 days from start to finish the first hypersonic weapon capability to a unit, a service official said. That sounds like a tremendously compressed schedule. That's an acquisition success story, it sounds like to me. Is that fair to say? Well, like, there's many things, Francis. The devil's in the details. Uh, I, I applaud what they're doing. I don't have any problem with the fact that they've emphasized schedule here to try to get a product out. Uh, the question I would have, though, is how much capability are they actually building? And how much do they need? And when's the next increment going to come so they get to what? I would consider an operationally meaningful uh, capability. Now, having one battery with a couple of rounds is nice. It, uh, it gives you experience, and you can learn a lot from that. But in terms of an operational capability, it's pretty limited. You know, I think what they've done is use prototypes effectively uh, to get to that initial, uh, uh, what they're calling is a leave-behind capability from the prototyping program. And what we really ought to be taking a look at is when they get uh, significant force uh, field. Uh, that's what I'd be more concerned about at this point. The, uh, the piece says the only element that won't be delivered to the unit until fiscal 2023 is a live round. I, I mean, I, I understand that that's probably the most important capability because that's what we want the missile to deliver. But what, what should we look at in between now and then for this capability? Because this is something that uh, I understand is really important to try to counter China and Russia who are already developing this technology. Yeah, think of this system, I think, as a conventional version of Pershing, okay? It's a longer-range missile. Uh, it's going to have a conventional warhead. The fact that it's a hypersonic means it it has a boost-glide vehicle on the front end instead of a, uh, a weapon that's just thrown ballistically, basically. So it can penetrate defenses much better. Uh, the time on target is relatively, roughly similar to, to a ballistic missile. You know, it, it doesn't get there all that much faster, but when it does get there, it's a lot harder to intercept. Um, and it has a much wider range of targets which it could potentially service. So that's all good. Uh, the weapon system isn't a weapon system until it has some munitions. And the things I'd be looking for 
are the, the flight test program and its success. You're not going to field until you have, uh, in quantity, until you've demonstrated that it, it works reliably and consistently. So they need to do that. So the other thing I'd be looking at is the budget. Uh, how many are funded? Uh, what's the inventory objective that goes with the with the fit up when they submit that? Now, the programs, I don't think this program uh, is a so-called program of record yet. It, it needs to get into the budget and the Army needs to show its commitment to actually fielding in quantity. How much of that depends on what else is going on in this broader discussion about the Army, Navy, Air Force, what the pay-fors are, and all of that, Frank? Yeah, I think if budgets are flat, and I think the best case is probably something like flat, maybe down a little bit, uh, you know, at the end of the, you know, the debate that will happen over the next year or so, uh, then people have to look at, okay, what growth were they expecting and planning on that they, they're going to have to cut back on to get within that? Uh, so there'll be a question at the Army level and then another question at the DOD level, uh, maybe even at the national level, about what the priorities are. I think the system's important. Um, the capability that I'm really looking forward to seeing out of this system is a land-based anti-ship capability. Uh, that's that's the way you counter China's uh, power projection capability in the South Pacific. And I think this system could be very, very valuable in that context. So I really hope it moves forward. Is there something that we can learn from the development process, the deployment process, the acquisition process of this, Frank, to apply to either other systems, well, systems of record, this one is not one yet, but uh, to systems of record or to systems that come along behind it? Uh, not yet. Um, I, I, like you, can, you can build something that does some basic functionality pretty quickly to build something that meets all of your requirements and operates reliably in a range of environments and so on, uh, that's harder. And it isn't clear that the Army's actually done that yet. So we'll, we'll see, okay? Um, I've watched a lot of these programs that try to go quickly. Schedules were really emphasized the last few years. And what often happens is you get something out very quickly that you don't like very much, and then you have to go redesign it. So I think the, the big question mark on this program is, what additional work will have to be done to make it truly operational? And the other thing is uh, the weapon is just a part of the system. You've got to do the targeting. You've got to do the battle of command. You've got to do the other things that are necessary to make it an effective weapon. And you have to integrate it into your operational plan. So I'd be interested in all of those things uh, before I declare this a full success. But again, I do applaud what they've done. I think it's great that they've been able to move quickly and get as far as they have. Uh, people should be prepared to, for some hiccups going forward before they finish the job. We have about a minute left, Frank, and that I, I want to close on kind of a philosophical question. What you're talking about there, it sounds to me like, is determining the right balance between moving quickly and moving, maybe effectively is not the right word, but it's the, the best one I can think of on short notice. Is that kind of what you're thinking about there, what you're alluding to? Yeah, I have a lot of experience with programs in the you know, decades, many decades now. and and. I've seen people push for schedule before. The usual result is that you cut corners and take risk, and then you have problems and you have to go back and fix them, and you end up taking longer. So we'll see what happens in this case. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. This is a relatively straightforward system, except for the boost glide vehicle, which is the hard part here. And they've had some degree of success with that. And they're, they're basing their design on an older Sandia design, uh, which, which has helped. So there's more experience with this design or one like it than, than you might expect. So uh, we'll see. Then, of course, as it integrates into operations, the uh, users are going to take a hard look at it and decide you know, how it really fits in and what they need. I mean, I applaud what the Army's done here. This is, an, in some sense, I mentioned Pershing. This is, in some sense, a non-traditional thing for the Army, at least in the last few decades. 
So it's great that they've done this. I, I questioned whether they were committed to this, this mission specifically when I was still in office. And so far, it seems like they are. So I really applaud them. Frank, thanks very much for joining me. Great to have you as always. Thank you. Good to be with you, President. Up next, speeding military acquisitions to ensure readiness for future threats. Straight ahead on Government Matters, why the process that's working the way it's meant to isn't working. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Army took six months to create, approve, and deploy face masks for its troops. The product they came up with was basically the same as an off-the-shelf product. A lag that long for those kinds of results could spell trouble for the force's ability to respond fast to great power competition threats in the future. Carolyn Baxter is a research fellow at the Eurasia Group Foundation. She's writing in Defense News about the procurement system. Carolyn, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What do we take away from what we learned about this face mask issue and how, to, how it applies to what troops will need during great power competition. Well, thanks for having me on. I think the thing to remember is in the era of great power competition, which I'd like to also point out has not been very clearly defined, the Pentagon has been essentially asked uh, to take on an enormous number of tasks and they've been given essentially first right of refusal. I think the lesson to take away from the Army face mask debacle, one might call it, is that when the Pentagon is asked to take on so many things, it cannot legitimately prioritize them and nail down what is in the immediate interest of life and livelihoods, especially for the armed forces themselves. Uh, I think this also then points the finger at the civilian leadership of the Pentagon that have been asking the Pentagon to take on so much. And we have to ask ourselves, if great power competition is in fact the next organizational strategy for the department, what role do the other cabinet departments, especially the State Department that outranks the Pentagon in the order of succession, what role should they play in defining and scoping the threat list that will then trickle down to the Pentagon and, uh, and will be asking them to take on the things that no, no other department actually can? As I read your piece, the, the thing that jumped out at me was the cultural uh, issue at the department and the consistency of it. I mean, throughout the entire uh, history of the United States, the culture of the War Department and then the Defense Department has been when we need something, we go out and figure out what it is and create it or contract it to be created, rather than, as you allude to with these masks, a pack of 20 N95 masks at Home Depot costs about $20. How do we break that culture and how does the, the breaking of that culture potentially apply to the way that we're thinking about trying to counter threats from China and Russia? So it's a good question and it's worth also keeping in mind that the acquisitions procedural processes uh, are very old and they exist for a reason. And so there's kind of two lessons to think about when it comes to great power competition and aligning that process with what we're asking them to do now. The acquisitions process as it stands has been around for decades and it's very good at buying the heavy equipment and machinery for great power warfare. What great power competition is essentially asking the Pentagon to do is consider the threats that are, as the Army Chief of Staff himself said, below the threshold of major power war. The goal of great power competition for some 
is to keep it outside of the level of an actual hot kinetic conflict. It's very hard, as I mentioned in the piece, to align a procurement system that is made to create the space and time to buy the major weaponry of war with a strategy that is seeking to avoid war itself through competition. So I wouldn't say that we need to amend or or change the procedure that we use to buy those weapons necessarily so much so then we need to create the space for the rest of government to figure out what actually are our vital national security interests. I think since the end of the Cold War, we've lost that thread uh, quite significantly. And now since uh, 9-11, since the war on terror uh, encouraged the Pentagon to balloon to such an extent, my worry is that great power competition is sort of the next generation of the war on terror. This diaphanous, hard to explain concept that provides essentially a blank check for the Pentagon to take on more than it can chew. And in effect, as we've seen with the face masks, be unable to quickly respond to the things that are actually killing people today. What what would you like to see strategy-wise in maybe a, a, a next national defense strategy in a QDR, some other type of policy document to put meat on those bones, Caroline, to make it clear this is what we as a nation or this is what we as a national security apparatus in the current administration believe great power competition means? So I think the first step is to peel apart the things that we include in the laundry list today out of what we call this new strategy. If great power competition includes things like economic competition, it's sort of disingenuous to wrap that into a new shiny concept when in fact economic competition is as old as nation states themselves. So we need to strip away what has existed outside of this quote unquote new concept from things that are actually new. And what I think is actually new from the outside is we have a what the Pentagon calls a pacing threat in terms of this large country that has a you know, sizable GDP, a growing military. But we have tacitly made the assumption that it is important that we match them symmetrically. We match them capability for capability. So the first thing I'd like to see is the Pentagon to articulate why it is in the interest of the average American taxpayer to defend, say, the Senkakus. What does it matter to uh, a nurse practitioner in Topeka, Kansas, that her tax dollars are going towards the Navy to ensure freedom of navigation operations? Making that thread uh, articulated and clear I think is 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 a very critical thing to do. And it's been sort of hand waved away for a long time, thinking that, well, national security is is uh, beyond the purview of the American people when I think that's vaguely insulting. I think it, the American people have a right to know why this is important to them. And uh, I think the next NDS and NSS and QDR, uh, whatever the next iteration of that would be, needs to make that very clear. And then the second thing is break that apart from what the State Department, the Department of the Treasury, all the other cabinet departments and agencies should be doing. The biggest thing that I would like to see in sort of a meta level context is for the US to stop crying to kind of out China, China. The biggest downfall to the war on terror was the draconian laws that we put in place to spy on our own citizens. What the great power competition strategy runs the risk of doing is a similar thing on a world stage where we, in, in order to prioritize military competition with China, 
we undercut what the Biden administration itself is trying to achieve, which is the idea of right makes might, not the other way around. Caroline, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you for the opportunity. You can find a link to Caroline's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, the security problem that's really a policy problem. Straight ahead on Government Matters, why getting an authority to operate could be a security threat. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The Defense Department says it's getting closer to a reciprocity setup for CMMC and FedRAMP. The number one complaint some vendors have about the FedRAMP process is how long it, gets, it takes to get an authority to operate. Mary Lazari is Director of Federal Strategy at Civic Actions. She's writing about the ATO process in FCW. Mary, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You write in this piece, the muddled bureaucratic process to obtain an ATO and launch an IT system inside government has become a pervasive threat to system security. How so, Mary? That sounds counterintuitive. Yeah, it is counterintuitive. I agree. Um, well, if you think about it, you know, there's there's a few ways in which the ATO process is, is contributing to a lack of security. Um, you know, we, we, if we're launching a product in the first place, we're probably replacing a system that maybe has security vulnerabilities of its own, or maybe it's built on software that's no longer supported, or it must be an inefficient system generally. And the longer it takes us to go through these authority to operate these ATO processes, the longer that system sits out there in operation, which is a, a vulnerability in and of itself. And if you look at, for example, solar winds last year, I mean, one thing is clear, we're spending a lot of time and energy trying to go through these compliance processes to make our systems secure or tell ourselves that our systems are secure. And they're clearly not, or in the very least, they're, they're certainly not bulletproof. You propose three steps in this piece. The first is let's stop doing the same thing over and over again. That's pretty self-evident to me, and I'm sure to anybody that's been involved with ATOs. The second step you propose is launching the Federal Compliance Library. What would that be and how would it work? We're really excited about the concept of a federal compliance library, and that really goes back to this concept of just sharing and sharing our work. You know, the way we're doing it now, since an agency over here is, is going through the ATO process on a certain system, and we maybe have an agency over here going through the same ATO process for a similar or sometimes even an identical system. And we're not we're not sharing our work, you know. So the the process requires writing a bunch of SSP system security plan narratives, you know. In, in the very least, let's let's see what we can share, you know. And and that's putting this out there in the federal compliance library, probably hosted in a product like GitHub. Um, let's put as much out there as we can without a login, just to for ease of use, so the agencies can go and grab it and and speed up the the process of doing all this paperwork. In the short term, that seems like that's low hanging fruit. This third step that you're proposing is let agencies experiment. How would you like to see agencies experiment in ways that they're not today? Well, you know, one of the things I'd really like to see is OMB and the Office of the Federal CIO or some of the new leadership in the White House really put a spotlight on this issue. I mean, ATOs have been a problem. The process to get for, to launch systems in government have been, has been a problem for a very long time. 
Um, you know, I think when when a, a group like OMB puts a little spotlight on it and maybe a little light oversight too. I mean, um, let's be reasonable about it. We can't expect agencies to go to, from zero to 100 overnight and suddenly have compliance as code and complete automation. But if we push them a little bit, put a little oversight on it, sprinkle a little funding, and maybe that funding comes from the Technology Modernization Fund, um, and we have them sort of experiment with one system or two systems of pilot projects. You know, we have we're working with. CMS right now on a, on a pilot project um, called Rapid ATO. And that's exactly what we would like to see across the agencies. How much experiment would too much be? Well, I think, you know, we talked about that in, in like in preparation for our day one policy paper on this, you know, and, th and that's my, my, the point I'm making is agencies can't go from zero to 100 overnight. You know, like for if OMB, for example, or NIST were to require, you know, let's get all this, the compliance statements in machine readable language by 2022, that, that would be too much. We couldn't get there. It would overburden agencies, but we want them to be able to have the, the guidance and the resources to start trying and see if they can get one one ATO and and do it in an automated way. Are there organizations inside government agencies or parts of agencies that are trying this that are doing it well already? Mary, you referenced CMS, and I imagine there might be others. CMS um, is the one I'm working with. They're really forward leaning in this area. Um, I know that the Defense Digital Service has a, a rapid ATO, continuous ATO type process. Kessel Run, a lot of the groups over in the Air Force uh, are doing a lot of work with this. And again, I just think if we can get the GSAs of the world, the NISTs of the world, to really just kind of look at what agencies are doing, provide more guidance, provide more resources, and a little bit more funding, then we can see a lot more of these of these good agencies doing good work. Mary, thanks very much for coming on and talking about this. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.